This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm voting for him in 2020. He made it very clear that he is here to put America first. You know, we have people suffering here, but meanwhile, we're spending so much time and energy devoted towards illegals or people coming to this country unfairly. And, you know, Democrats have made a mess of our inner cities, but he is really trying to root all that mess out and really help people in the ways that are actually effective, rather than the empty lies and promises that Democrats have been giving, but we haven't had any results. People are waking up. People are changing. Humans are naturally concerned. With him, we're going to make a big change here in America. I think a lot of African Americans are waking up and they're coming to the realization that Trump is great for America. Trump has done so many fantastic things, not only for, you know, what you think the white people or the rich people, but for the black people, for the Asian people, for the Latino people, for everyone. He has done something amazing, and he will keep doing things amazing. And when he is elected in 2020, he will continue to make this country better than it was before. It's easy to get excited about our president who is putting your needs first. And that's too often, too often something that we don't hear from the mainstream media, is the way he's trying to help America be the best that it can be. So it was fantastic to be there and, you know, just basically tell him thank you for standing up for us because we know that he takes a lot of a lot of hits from the media for us and we're, we're so happy to speaking and that we are being used and paid by politicians and that's so, couldn't be so far from the truth, but that is how they like to paint us, specifically black conservatives. They like to deem us as tokens. Instead of just telling the truth, it seems like they're so scared to tell the truth because they know like our community will wake up if they get the truth out there. The media for a long time has um, fooled the black community into believing uh, that Republicans are racist. But when we study our history, we find out that the, it was the Republicans that actually passed the first civil rights bill, and it was the Republicans that abolished slavery. And so now that we're starting to learn for ourselves and think for ourselves, um, you're going to see a lot of more black people voting for Republicans. It's growing every day. We see day. that on the ground every day. We see that on our... It was uh, one of the greatest experiences of my life. I would, I would never forget that. It was wonderful, man. It was beautiful. Absolutely. Look at all these uh, Uncle Toms, right? Free-thinking blacks. It was fantastic. It was amazing. It's such an honor to have been able to get there and even see the president in person. It was um, amazing. I just met the president, man. He told me I was the flyest guy in the room. It was an honor. Thank you. You know what I mean? The matter is... Uh, the conservative message resonates with black America. And, you know, as time continues to turn, uh, the Democrats are going to have to reckon with that eventually. The, the little co- this is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. You're going to sing, to swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative activism. Empowerment Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground. 
speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our common ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening to all of you out here. In the sanctuary, this is our common ground, and I'm glad to be back and so pleased to have each and every one of you with us tonight. If you are listening on a smart device and would like to join us in our chat room, there are seats available, front seats, at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And if you'd like to listen on your smart device, the number is 347-838-9852. And yes, I have missed each and every one of you over the last three weeks. Um, We did uh, take some time off, and uh, we were uh, very glad to be able to do that, especially with two holidays back-to-back. The United States government has given us a new federal holiday, and it is Juneteenth, and we provided the information that you needed to have on Juneteenth to understand what it is, how it is, and what it means. And we are not so sure what it means, but... um, we did provide the information because this is the university on the air. Uh, same for the uh, 4th of July, which is called sometimes Independence Day for the United States. And we provided you the what we do each year, and that is uh, to remind you of the speech of what is, Fourth of July to the Negro, and um, it, it remains in both of those uh, podcasts. Remain in our archives at blogtalkradio.com/backslash/ocg. Tonight, here at our common ground, we are in conversation with our brother and uh, the our common ground in. Interlocutor Pascal Robert, the thought merchant. He is the co host now of This Is Revolution podcast, which you can find both on Facebook and on YouTube. And if you have not um, tuned into the content that these two men, Pascal Robert and Jason Miles, are providing. You must. It is a must podcast. Uh, Pascal is um, has been with Our Common Ground since 2013, and we call him uh, the an Our Common Ground voice. And he is also part of a team 
of thinkers that we put together back in 2014 called the Our Common Ground Interlocutors. And some of them have gone the way of the wind, and we will be looking for others to put uh, into that team tonight at Our Common Ground with um, Pascal. Uh, we're going to be talking about a, a number of things because he is a very valued uh, political, not only thinker and uh, left progressive philosopher, well-read, well, both culturally and institutionally educated uh, brother, uh, he is a political commentator, a journalist, an essayist on black politics, U.S. economic and financial politics, and Haiti. And tonight we're going to be talking with him about, well, you all know how I like to have my conversations with Pascal. Uh, in the era of Trump, Black people are experiencing an awful lot, and the, the era has not left us uh, an awful lot of confusion. And I have uh, some intriguing interest in how black people choose to support um, the MAGA, Trump, right evangelical ideology, and we're going to be talking with Pascal about that in the first hour. In the second hour, we're going to be talking with him about the assassination of the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, and also the political uprising and, and chaos that is going on in this country. Most of you know that Pascal is also a son of Haiti. Though he did not, he was not born there, he was not uh, reared there, and he lived in New York City um, for most of his life. He listened to his uncles and to his father and to his mother and his family and learned from a perspective that many of us will never have about the history, the culture, and the political evolution and revolution of that nation. So we're going to be talking with him about Haiti in the second page. We also have a treat for you. Uh, as you know, I am a huge fan of This Is Revolution podcast. And this morning, um, Garuba al-Muhahid bin Wahad, an American writer and activist who is formerly a political prisoner, and Black Panther Party leader and co-founder of the Black Liberation Army, uh, was a guest on This Is Revolution. And in our last half hour, 
we will be replaying some parts of the conversation that Jason Miles, Pascal Robert had with him. It is must-listen discourse. It is the contemporary learning for liberation, and we hope that you will stay with us. Uh, a note about TruthWorks Network. Uh, the Alpha Show, as many of you know, has not aired for over a month now. And I don't often do this, but I want to ask each and every one of you, Alpha is ill, and I want to ask you to whisper a prayer to whatever force, whatever good force you send uh, for his recovery. He is in hospital in Chicago, and you know how much I love this brother. And I'm asking you to whisper to send a band of angels to send the force that you have at your disposal. So please do that. In the meantime, we are going to be using Alpha's Friday night show for our Listen, Learn, Liberate series that we um, often have. And we hope that you will tune in. For those of that you of you who are new, write it down. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two, and you will be able to um, talk with Pascal in our second hour. And so, write down your questions, your comments that are brief, and um, we hope to hear from you. And know that we are at OurCommonGround.com. We monetize nothing. It's all free, but it's all good. And so without any other notes that I have tonight to help us begin, uh, I want to introduce to you, to some, and we are so pleased to have him back. Pascal Robert. Pascal, my brother, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Janice. It's always a pleasure to be with you and the All Common Ground audience. I consider this to be uh, uh, one of my early broadcast homes, and I tell Jason all the time, that when I just started simply with my Thought Merchant blog back in 2007, I remember that there was this woman who used to always like my posts, and sometimes she would even share them, and I would always wonder who she was, and I do remember that that was you. So you were one of the early fans of my work when I was just a humble blogger starting out, scribbling out my thoughts on my Thought Merchant blog. Well, you know, I have always thought you to be a brilliant analyst. Uh, do you remember that? Well, yes, I do remember it. I do remember it, and I'm, and you have no idea what I had to go through to uh, first get you here to try to find how to contact you, uh, and then I just decided to 
throw you one right in the public and say, would you contact me? <laughs> um, so, but but our common ground is always your home. You are always viewed as one of the the team members here, and uh, uh, I am just so proud of what you and Jason have created at This Is uh, Revolution. Um, it is a podcast, and for those of you who do not know, you can find them uh, at um, Patreon, uh, but it the uh, are and follow them on Twitter. Uh, their YouTube channel is This Is Revolution Podcast, uh, and it is one of the most um, educational, intellectually stimulating um, podcasts available. And and we thank them for this. And Pascal, I'm really, really proud of how you have become such a uh, vibrant, robust uh, host. You know, I remember the first time you hosted for me and co-hosted with me, and you are one of the top professionals, in my opinion, on on the internet. Oh, so, thank you so much, Janice. Let's talk a little about black political confusion. I am very concerned that at the end of a very, very dangerous uh, four years of the Trump presidency, that we are divided in a way that we have never seen in the last 50 years as a community. And one of the phenomenons that come out of that in my mind, are black people who are supportive. There are a number of things where I think it's dangerous and it's injurious to us as black people. You know, the we we were talking about this morning? The we. (laughs) (laughs) When you talk about the we, when you talk about them, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the descendants of U.S. shadow slavery, the descendants and weary warriors like me, both the civil rights and the black power movement, I'm talking about the reconstructionists who are descendants of American slavery and how weary we all are. So I I, I want to talk about, and and this phenomenon about how black people have come to the idea that somehow conservatism uh, transposes itself into MAGA and Trumpism. And some of the injury, you know, the... 
the idea that in the Trump during the Trump administration, black men were being told or had the idea or the image that black people didn't uh, didn't favor them, didn't support them, and that the Democrats were somehow surfacing over black men in order to uplift black women. And that is a division that is very troubling. What are your thoughts? Well, that's a very loaded question, and it's a very good question. I want, as with many things dealing with politics in the United States, I somewhat kind of want to root the problems that you're talking about, which is a fracture which is you know, part of the title of a book I'm working on we can talk about. Why is there a fracture in black politics? And to answer that question, I want to bring up a theme that we use at our show, This is Revolution Podcast, that you may have heard us mention, what I call the 50-year counter-revolution. What is the 50-year counter-revolution, and how did I come up with it? I was born, as you may know, Janice, I was born in 1968. And I remember vividly my 50th birthday when in 2018. And my birth, not only because of the fact that 1968 was my birth year, because I realized in the context of history, so many things happened that year. Martin Luther King is assassinated. Uh, Robert, F. Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated. We had urban rebellions and riots. We had a massive uh, uh, radical rebellion in Paris. You had, you know, you know Vietnam. You had the Black Panther Party is, is at its height. Urban rebellions all over the country Again as I stated Because I realized that That year Represented so much in American politics Also the rise of Nixon And I've always considered myself A kind of child Of uh, A baby of the 60s A child of the 60s And I was born at the tail end of all of that And in reflection of Looking back on my life politically And historically when I turned 50, I came to the realization that one of the most important things I noticed is that no one was talking about the fact that 2018 was the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. I was shocked at how little discourse there was about that in 2018. And what I also realized is that what that 50-year period was was a counter-revolution. What does that mean? All of the politics we saw from the rise of Nixon after the assassination of um, Martin Luther King up until today has been a fight against everything we saw from the 50s to the 60s, even going back to the 40s, to destroy what was known as the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition. What was the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition? The New Deal Civil Rights Coalition was the coalition of the white working class that benefited from the New Deal and the civil rights establishment and the beneficiaries of the civil rights movement in the 60s and 50s who believed, as Bayard Rustin did, that they would be able to take their unified unified position in the Democratic Party and take the liberal democratic order of – anti, you know, colorblind, democratic America into the 21st century with that New Deal Civil Rights Coalition. 
And what that assumption on their part failed to realize was how much, with the rise of Nixon particularly, the conservative right wing of capital, I call this two flanks of capital, there's the right flank of capital and the left flank of capital. That doesn't just mean the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, because there are organizations that are not political parties that function in those flanks of capital. You may have the Koch brothers on the right flank of capital, but you may have the Ford Foundation on the left flank of capital. So we have to understand that for me, I look at these as the flanks of capital. And what happens with the rise of Nixon is that the right flank of capital starts a massive counter-revolution against the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition, mass incarceration, uh, combat, combat against affirmative action, uh, you know, uh, you know. Also, the and there are other ways in which the the ruling class comes in to kind of neutralize the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition. And what becomes obvious to me, literally in my late 40s, in my early 50s, is that the 50-year counter revolution. Initially, when I thought it was a right-wing reaction, I came to the conclusion and realized that it was a bipartisan consensus. And that's not something I realized until I came upon my 50th birthday, that it wasn't just Reagan, it wasn't just the Republicans, it was a bipartisan consensus rooted in the condition of the American political economy and the shift away from Bretton Woods when we had the gold standard, the increased trade competition by the Germans and the Japanese in the early 70s coming out of World War II where America controlled everything that forced American capitalism to go into a period of retraction with this fancy word we use called neoliberalism, which we always define as hyper-privatization and hyper-marketization. And the bottom line is that that contraction of capitalism is the same period of time that black people basically are for the first time able to equally compete in American capitalism. And because of the strategy that was used in this, the Cold War, in the uh, excuse me, New Deal Civil Rights Coalition, a strategy that political scientist Preston Smith calls racial democracy, which is basically race-first agendas. Because racial democracy tends to allocate the benefits of those strategies to black people who are more proximate to middle class or more financial security than the majority of blacks who are working class and working poor, the racial democracy agenda of the 60s that unfortunately had to be stripped of social democracy, i.e. materialist working class policies like a New Deal 2.0 federal jobs guarantee could not have been implemented because of why? Because the McCarthy era of the post-World War II era, era made that politics seem socialist or communist, and they were basically taken off the table. Since racial democracy was the only option left, race for its program, it limited the scope of the civil rights gains to be more attuned to benefiting blacks. And I don't want to use black elites, but because there were black poor people that benefited, but even the ones who were poor were those who were more likely to be proximate to becoming middle class. And because capitalism was contracting, as I told you, in this 50-year counter-revolution, 
the black poor and working class who now do no, no longer have sharecropper plantations and domestic labor are trying to go get jobs in industrial centers that are now being deindustrialized. They're being cannibalized. There is heroin in the neighborhoods. Families are breaking up because of crime, mass incarceration, drugs, and as a result, the, the phenomenon of what comes to be known in the 80s and 90s as the black underclass underclass discourse becomes racialized and gets born and the only reason that happens is because the black poor and working poor who were mostly sharecroppers and domestic workers up until the 60s got integrated into an economy that basically didn't exist anymore because we had made the neoliberal turn to hypermarketization and privatization that cannibalized capitalism in a way that brought forth austerity that left poor and working class black people out on their own, while, while black middle class or black middle class proximates got some Nixonian black capitalism, while the rest of everyone else got deindustrialization, mass incarceration, and got left behind. And the crisis that you are talking about is a result of the failure of black politics to root itself in the changes of the political economy of American capitalism and still believe that that racial democracy agenda that kind of helped create the problem in the first place of race first without a class-based policy agenda for black people is going to change the situation. And because there was no real agenda during the 50-year counter-revolution because black people thought kind of they had arrived with the black middle class growing and there was no real movement, we shut down the movement, everything was Shangri-La. We, we see pictures of Ebony Magazine in 1987 during the Reagan years of the new black middle class. The black middle class is celebrating while black poor and working class is ground to dust. And black people stop having movements until what happens? The first black president after the 2008 crash that takes away 35 to 50% of black wealth comes in and people start talking about post-racial America, racism is over, Obama is the, is the epitome of the civil rights fantasy, and then we find civil rights dreams, and we find out he is nothing but a Citibank Robert Rubin manufactured tool that oversaw a, an economic agenda that cannibalized the black community, and everyone was unwilling to admit that, unfortunately, the Obama legacy was a legacy of black economic destruction and the rise of black people fracturing from the traditional belief in the liberal democratic party is a consequence of during the 50-year counter-revolution the democratic party and its neoliberal turn starting with clinton being more brutal in its administration of the 50-year counter-revolution neoliberal turn than Republicans. NAFTA, deindustrialization, GATT, deindustrialization, mass incarceration, end of welfare, end of Glass-Steagall, financial deregulation, deregulation causing the subprime mortgage crisis, all under Democrats. What happens? A whole new generation of black people who are millennials, born 
after 1980 who didn't taste the benefits of the civil rights movement that your generation and even my generation did vis-a-vis affirmative action because some of us were able to graduate and could get nice corporate jobs because they graduated into an economy where they were literally come out of, coming out of Howard and their Harvard MBA and some of their friends having to work at Starbucks were saying, oh, this is horrible. We got screwed. I'm thinking about voting for Trump, while white kids in the same situation said, it's about capitalism, I'm going to support Bernie Sanders. And that is what is the core and the crux of the fracture that has gotten a segment of black people, I didn't get to the men part, but black people, but particularly black men, thinking and flirting with Trumpist fascism in America today. Let me... um delve into some of what you've had to say. Like, you know, in my generation, we talk about collaborators. In my generation, we talk about betrayal. There were some key elements in every one of the uh, events and, and the consequences of those events who were either collaborators or they were architects of the black shift. So during the this 50 year coming up to the Obama administration where black people began to question in some serious ways about whether or not Democrats in this country had their interest in mind, not necessarily, I'm not worried about in heart, but in mind, who would you say were the key components in having this division or the, the circumstances under which the fractures happened? I think that the fracture, I don't even think it was really a conspiracy. I think it was, I'll be very honest with you, I think that what happened is that certain discourse that had been regular in the black left, that was just in the black left in our own little echo chamber of five, because of the advent of the Internet and publications like Black Agenda Report and people reading people like Adolf Reed, people, young black people for the first time started using concepts like the black misleadership class. Young black people started saying things like the Congressional Black Caucus doesn't do anything for us. But because they didn't have the sophisticated political context of black political history and thought that usually people that, that like yourself who came out of the black left had, understanding how that happened, they just said, those people are Democrats. That's why they don't work for us. Let's be Republicans. Well, I think it – I agree with you, but I think it happened long before – um, there was a pronouncement of the black left. We called it uh, the black power um, movement. 
but I I think that it started the questioning really started right during the formation of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. I also That's true. Think, well, I also think that there were establishment people. Um, I mean, I was at SN- in SNCC at the time, and there were establishment people who were even doing the questioning. Gar- the G- Gary Convention was just simply a question of challenging the black establish- political uh, establishment underneath Democratic, Demo- the Democratic Party control. But you know the black political establishment came out of the vic- as the victors out of Gary. They came out on top because they controlled the agenda because they had the administrative proximity to the governing infrastructure because they had worked in many of the programmic jobs, you know, the, the state welfare jobs that came out of uh, the, um, the 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 uh, LBJ Great Society. They had they had administrative skills and political acumen because they were educated people who came out of jobs proximate to government functionality that made them more appealing to be able to be political voices, and their class came out and basically created and evolved and developed the black political class. The only difference is that because they were so proximate to the radical politics of the 60s at that time, they didn't have the ability to be as treacherously neoliberal, and, and there was no interest in finance capital totally bankrolling, with totally bankrolling them, which started to become the case with the rise of Clinton. So one of the things, there's a great article that Glenn Ford has where he talks about the, the, uh, the, the right wing trying to capture black politics that he writes with the rise of, uh, of um, Cory Booker. And he has, I have, it, I have it in my email, I have to find it. He traces how during the late 80s, early 90s, particularly in the early 90s and to the late 90s, all of this money starts to be flooded into black politics in certain key campaigns. And what he's saying, he calls it right wing. I think he was mistaken in calling it right wing. What it was was finance capital was trying to find eligible neoliberal Trojan horses for black politics. And they found mm-hmm. a lot of people a lot of people forget this. They found five trial balloons. And Obama was just the best trial balloon. The five trial balloons were Cory Booker, Adrian Fenty, Arthur Davis, mm-hmm. Harold Ford Junior, and Barack Obama. Yep. But who were the architects within the black community? And one of the I don't think the black community saw it coming yet. Well, you know, at Gary, I was part of the group that was going to walk out. And I, I, I think if you think about it, Pascal, it was John Lewis. Oh yeah, John Lewis. Uh, oh, this is very important. I'm glad John Lewis, who everyone loves, now, John Lewis was a signatory on the Democratic Leadership Council which was the organization that the Clintons created with all of those Southern governors to 
pivot the Democratic Party to the right, cut out its support for black politics and policy to appeal to white, quote-unquote, working-class voters and neutralize black people and come down with tough-on-crime, anti-welfare politics, policy, and rhetoric, and John Lewis was on the team to make that happen. Well, I, I just think that all during that time, there was a lot of questions about political integrity uh, at the time. Uh, I know that Ron Walters, the um, uh, now deceased former um, head of political science at Howard, was caught in in in, in between that. But I think also you're forgetting. Um, I can't think of his name. He was a U.S. representative from Georgia. Um, uh, come on, help me out here, uh, Pascal. Are you talking uh, about the light-skinned brother who, who went, to, went on to yeah, die? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Julian yeah, Bond. Yeah. Julian Bond, uh, Ron Walters, um, even though I don't put Ron in the same, but Ron got caught up into it because of his association with with Howard University. Okay, but how do we get to the point that there was, I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that there were architects of getting to the to the race between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. I think that you, I think that this starts with the rise of Clinton, the Clintonism, the rise of Clintonian Democratic Party, and the black people who sign onto that. Your Vernon Jordans, uh, yes. what was the name of the brother who was alive at the time, who was helping Clinton's campaign manager, who died, who got the gunshot to the head on the German plane. What was the name of the lawyer? Ron Brown. Brown. Was Ron Brown. Brown. Ron Brown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ron Brown. Um, you know, those guys who were always able to leverage their proximity to the – don't forget now, this is very important, right? We have kind of like a segment of the black political class that comes out of the civil rights movement like Vernon Jordan, like Ron Brown, uh, like a few others, who what one of my friends calls the, uh, the set-aside guys, the minority set-aside Negroes, who got fat on uh, Nixon's minority set-aside black capitalism, and when Reagan came into power, they didn't become Republicans, but they went corporate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. right. You're absolutely right. John Johnson was one of those people. Yes. And, that's, and that goes back to your reflection on what was happening with Ebony Magazine in uh, the mid-'70s and '80s. Uh, in collusion, I can't say in collusion, but in cahoots, uh, in terms of the imagery of the state of Black America, um, right. that was sold as part of the what I call a propaganda package. Now, how do we get to uh, at the end of the Barack Obama uh, administration? to this pitting black women and black men, and how did we get to 20% of black men supporting 
the presidency of Donald Trump. Well, I don't know if the numbers are that high, but I think that what what happens, right? <laughs> we, we we must realize that I'm counting in the people uh, who said I'm sitting it out. We must, we must realize that in the rise of Obama. Now we do know that even before Obama, because the Democratic Party was giving black people nothing in terms of policy. See, at least in the in the early seventies, when we had the first black political class of mayors, we had Mayor Jackson, we had uh, uh, um, what was the brother we had in L.A. the 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 guy I forget his name. You know, we had certain black mayors, right? Even though. They, they represented the ruling class, and they were governing over cities that were contracting in terms of capital, they did look out for their people, i.e., the black middle class, those who had, you know, law, law degrees or, or business degrees, i.e., uh, for example, uh, uh, Mayor Jackson gives his Morehouse fraternity brothers access to do the bond, the bond issuing for the city of Atlanta, uh, some of the contracts for the airport. So some of the best of the black political class, even though they were hooking up their their brothers of their class while the black poor was still getting neoliberal ground to powder, they at least realized that we got to hook up some of our people, all right? What happens is that when the neoliberal term becomes so bad and we can't even get anything out of government like we did in the 70s. Then the play, starting with around like Carter, but definitely going into into uh, Clinton, it's like, okay, since we can't get no policy, how many black folk are they going to have in the administration? Who's going to be the black folk to get jobs? We move to black faces in high places becomes our remedy for asking for policy or fat back and biscuits for the black elite. You when you say fat black back, I always I I'm always wanted to ask you about this. Fat uh, back and biscuits is patronage, concessions, uh, contracts, <laughs> business. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I love to hear you say it. Uh, <laughs> but you know, one of the things that you hear around the block is that in all of this confusion that was created um, between um, the last two years of the Obama administration and the full four years of the Trump administration, was that black people were in many ways um, delusional about a lot of what the eight years of Obama meant six years of what, what Obama meant, and what Jess, were Jess, some of the alternatives. Jess, you what? want me to summarize what the problem was, real simple? Of course I do. In, in the 50-year counter-revolution, black folk didn't have any working-class black politics. Yep. I mean, on this show, for the past 10 years, I have been questioning and advocating a new black political political infrastructure that starts at the bottom. And there has been architects of the new black politics that has been resistant 
an interventionist to black political activism by uh, black poor people and black working people. Because black politics now is in the crux of the neoliberal right wing of the Democratic Party, while we actually have white progressives who are to the left. That's never happened before. And what does it mean? It is a, it is it should be an existential crisis for black people who are students of black politics like yourself. When when even up in Jesse Jackson's era, Jesse Jackson was the most radical candidate on the Democratic Party platform that black people supported. Now black people are in the right wing of the Democratic Party and we got white trust fund socialists to the left. When has that ever happened before in your lifetime, Janice? It has never happened. People forget that Jesse Jackson, I mean, I was the Massachusetts chair for the Jesse Jackson uh, for President campaign, and people forget that Jesse Jackson was the first ever presidential candidate to call for gay rights. Rainbow Coalition? Rainbow Coalition, absolutely. And so we have forgotten... We have essentially our confusion in my in my mind comes from what we have forgotten as opposed to what we are looking forward to because I think people are are, are very uh, suspicious of any black political ideology plan that comes along, which is why Ice Cube and Shaq. Lil Wayne with his, well, anyway. They're, they're, why are these guys re- recycling 1972 black capitalism like this is something new? Exactly. And not really understanding it at all. So how do we, how do we begin to get black people to begin to ask the relevant questions, to begin to forge the relevant and important Important alliances, because somehow we have gotten real confused about what our alliance, uh, what our alliances should be, who our comrades you, you heard, are. You heard our listen. You heard our conversation today. Who in the black chattering class, the black media elites, the black political establishment, the black political class, is going to say yes? We need to have a black working class based politics rooted in a federal jobs guarantee, rooted in good union jobs, rooted in Medicare or universal health care, rooted in domestic a domestic Marshall Plan. Who black in people. the black cheddar? Who you you know who the only person who will agree to something like that is? Nina Turner? Who? Ocasio Cortez. Yep, Nina you're Turner. Absolutely right. O- Ocasio Cortez. Absolutely, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and, but what and did black, let's, what did, let's and, talk well, here's about the question. What did black people do when that kind of politics, and we know that Bernie Sanders is no hero for anyone, but the agenda had things that we needed. 
What did black what did the black political class do when that agenda was presented? They sabotaged it because they realized they'd rather have their fat back and biscuits from the neoliberal faction of the Democratic Party with their concessions, with their patronage, with their media contracts, with their interviews with XYZ presidential candidate, with their black faces and high faces like Kamala Harris, Karine Jean Pierre, or black girl magic for empire, nonsense, nonsense. But here's the question, Pascal. At some juncture in this, what I've been calling, we need a a rescue and recovery plan. Where do we begin to do that? Where do we begin? Because, I mean, you know, I've been in this thing, I've been in this thing since 1960. And I don't think that we have seen the kind of damage. We've got rubble everywhere. That Voting Rights Act gutted in 2013. Supreme Court is throwing it away again. Affirmative action is probably going to be going out the window. you got Republican states passing fascist anti-free speech legislation because they want to stop people from talking about racism in American history in school, and they're using mistakenly the proxy of critical race theory as a means to erase America's tortured history with race from education. you got Trumpian, Trumpian reactionary right-wingers at every corner, yet some black people think that this is the third reconstruction and reparations is around the corner, really? Or you really don't realize how much you guys are playing with a politics that's going to literally bring in the next fascist administration. Well, the fascist administrations are moving. I mean, one of the things, and and I want the audience to really begin to grasp, to to grasp and, and, and think through, the fascist administration that fascism in this country is moving on two planes. It's multidimensional. It is being successfully implemented and executed at the state level. And I don't care what anybody tells you in every state in this United States, once the state takes a position the locals will follow. That is why uh, the MAGA campaign has people who, d- who can't even read running for the local school board, running for the local health department, whatever appointments. So you've got governors like Ron DeSantis who are putting local people in place to support his authoritarian, fascist state government. Once that happens, it bleeds into the federal form of government. And there's no stopping it. Because you now, and we all have to agree, and Pascal, I think you agree, that we no longer have a judiciary, a federal judiciary, that is nonpartisan. 
The Supreme oh, definitely Court. I agree with that. The Supreme Court is a partisan body of political puppets, and I take Sotomayor out of there. There's what is that noise? Okay, so how do we how do we even begin to resist? I mean, it can't be it can't be muddled and mealy mouth the way in which the Biden Harris uh, uh, administration is approaching it. I think the first question we have to ask is that who do we have that agrees with the agenda that we want? There has to be a working class agenda that's rooted in the black working class and poor that wants to set off that agenda. And unfortunately, they, they tend to be people like Nina Turner. Not unfortunately. I mean, I'm glad we have people like her. But the question becomes, uh, are, how are we going to make the pivot to get the working class black folk in the coalitions with people like Nina, or we can find people like her to encourage them to run, to shift black politics in a way that is materialist, rooted in the political economy and the economic condition of black folk, instead of this politics that's celebrating black faces in high places, having Amazon give $100 million to, to Black Lives Matter to do nothing for black people. Oh, I, I think that one of the things is we look at the collaborators, and when Black Lives Matter is not working for us at both the local and, an, and the higher level, we begin to challenge and take over their mechanisms. I mean, I'm Jan, old. Janice, my thing is this. In, in, <laughs> I think we have to come to a realization that we need to have a critical examination of how class amongst black people in America is affecting black politics, and we have to be really, really direct in exposing those contradictions and basically letting working-class black people know why they have to create their own politics and deal with Latinos, blacks, Asians, or Hispanics, and Native Americans who are not blinded by racism, who want to have a transformative agenda to change this country. We might have a few white progressives now who are talking the talk, but we need to make it a working class movement instead of a bunch of trust fund white socialists living in on their dad's pen, on their, tan, their dad's bond holdings in a loft in Brooklyn. Well, as as a as as a a person who has been doing this for thirty four years, I will say that that has to start with people just deciding just deciding that I'm going to find the Nina Turners in my community. I mean, we shouldn't I have, even I have call a, it a left. We shouldn't even call it a left politics. We need a working class exactly. politics. We, we should we should be calling it uh, we should be calling it re, re, the recovery and rescue. We got to recover and rescue black people. Pasco, we're going to take a, a break now. And I, I think that one of the things, you know, y'all stop having conversations with people who try to have a conversation which is anti-black. And that's a conversation about legislative policies that have not come to fruition. It is unacceptable. It is intolerable. 
This is Our Common Ground, our guest tonight. In conversation with Pascal Robert, when we come back, we're going to shift over uh, and, and do a little talking with a, uh, a son of Haiti uh, about the upheaval. Um, and it wasn't just caused by the assassination. I want people to know that. Our number is 347-838-9852. In the second hour, we're going to be trying to take some of your calls, but we're not going to knock out ourselves if we're in the groove. Thank you for being with us. I'm Janice Graham. The president said we blew his ears out. <laughs> Got a chance to listen to all the things that he's done for the black community, and uh, I'm just grateful for this president. I didn't support him uh, the last election. But after seeing what he's done and that speech he gave in there, he's convinced me I'm voting for him in 2020. He made it very clear that he is here to put America first. You know, we have people suffering here, but meanwhile, we're spending so much time and energy devoted towards illegals or people coming to this country unfairly. And, you know, Democrats have made a mess of our inner cities, but he is really trying to root all that mess out and really help people in the ways that are actually effective, rather than the empty lies and promises that Democrats have been giving, but we haven't had any results. People are waking up. People are changing. Humans are naturally concerned. With him, we're going to make a big change here in America. I think a lot of African Americans are waking up, and they're coming to the realization that Trump is great for America. Trump has done so many fantastic things, not only for, you know, what you think the white people or the rich people, but for the black people, for the Asian people, for the Latino people, for everyone. He has done something amazing, and he will keep doing things amazing. And when he is elected in 2020, he will continue to make this country better than it was before. It's easy to get excited about our president who is putting your needs first. And that's too often, too often something that we don't hear from the mainstream media is the way he's trying to help America be the best that it can be. So it was fantastic to be there and, you know, just basically tell him thank you for standing up for us because we know that he takes a lot of a lot of hits from the media for us and we're, we're so happy to see speaking and that we are being used and paid by politicians and that's so, couldn't be so far from the truth. But that is how they like to paint us, specifically black conservatives. They like to deem us as tokens. Instead of just telling the truth, it seems like they're so scared to tell the truth because they know, like, our community will wake up if they get the truth out there. The media for a long time has um, fooled the black community into believing uh, that Republicans are racist. But when we study our history, we find out that the, it was the Republicans that actually passed the first civil rights bill, and it was the Republicans that abolished slavery. And so now that we're starting to learn for ourselves and think for ourselves, um, you're going to see a lot of more black people voting for Republicans. It's growing every day. We see day. that on the ground every day. We see that on our... It was the, one of the greatest experiences of my life. I would, I would never forget that. It was wonderful, man. It was beautiful. Absolutely. Look at all these uh, Uncle Toms, right? Free-thinking blacks. Fantastic. It was amazing. It's such an honor to have been able to get there and even see the president in person. It was um, amazing. I just met the president, man. He told me I was the flyest guy in the room. It was an honor. Thank you. You know, but anything the matter is, uh, the conservative message resonates with black America. And, you know, as time continues to turn, uh, the Democrats are going to have to reckon with that eventually. The, the little coverage that it seems that we do get in this movement is that we're paid, that we're tokens, that we're not actually believing in the voices that are speaking and that we are being used and paid by politicians. And that's so, couldn't be so far from the truth. But that. 
How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in the journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council. And- because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. TruthWorks Network, nightly call-in talk radio. It's the Black Voice Collaborative, right here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Grant. Join me on TruthWorks Network, conversations in deep waters. I believe in truth. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Napier, and I would love to have you join me on TruthWorks Network here, and I am restoring hope, healing through connection at TruthWorks Network. I believe in truth. This is awful. It would be my honor if you would join TruthWorks Network. I believe in truth. Hi, I'm Denise Bold, and I'd like you to join me on TruthWorks Network. I believe in truth. We have a distracting election. The people, middle class, who are vulnerable to propaganda and repetitious bullshit that you hear coming from the mouths of these clowns day after day. And that's where we are. And that's why it's almost the bewitching hour. It's almost checkmate. It's almost that time. The time is of no return. It's almost the time when we won't be able to recover. Because recovery simply will not be in the cards for us. We cannot, I repeat, we cannot continue down this road. 
because this road is headed for the ultimate dead end. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Alpho the Gypsy Man, the daddy of pushback politics. Alpho is in the house on Our Common Ground. Just damn. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Tonight, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security dispatching senior officials to Haiti to help investigate the brutal assassination of President Jovenel Moise, the country in utter turmoil, the Haitian government requesting American troops to help keep the peace. The government officials here declaring a state of siege. They urge people to stay in their homes and to remain calm. And that is what we have seen here. This is a moment of calm, but the concern is that this city, Port-au-Prince, and this country could descend into chaos at any moment. Tonight, many questions remain about who killed the president and why. Nearly two dozen people are now under arrest, two seen here dragged by police to an angry crowd. Officials parading suspects in front of the cameras along with a large cache of weapons. Two are American citizens, James Solage and Joseph Vincent. A Haitian judge leading the investigation says the Americans claimed they were only acting as translators for the assassins. I asked acting Prime Minister Claude Joseph about their role. They have said that they were only uh, merely translators um, in the midst of this this operation um, and that they were set up. Generates who always just want to suck blood out of the country. Well, a lot of Haitian middle class gun door types who you know, cheerlead, like people in my family who love Martelli, who love Martelli, don't realize that these degenerates just want to replicate the same class hierarchy but get their own internal fat back and biscuits by running businesses with foreign actors to keep the peasants poor while the black middle class sucks the blood out of them and still has their positions of security. Am I right or wrong? Absolutely, brother. And the, the sad thing is when you privatize these state apparatuses, and the, the reason why I say the coup d'etat... It would have been, been a disaster for them anyway because there's no more state apparatuses for the black middle class to work in to have jobs anymore. But, but the, the, And this is why I say the coup d'etat, Pascal, is because of the fact that with, with this, uh, the, the intent now for the... Uh, black prof- professional managerial class now is to obtain employment from the Haitian oligarchy. By that's, and, all, that's all the mulattoes and the, and the blacks, can, the black elite can do now. Absolutely. Do the Haitian absolutely. 
and this is why, it, you know, it, for me, the way I see what's going on contemporarily, it has to be a coup d'etat with elements from the black pro- professional managerial class and elements of the Haitian oligarchy saying, hey, we're losing control because what was happening in Haiti under, because, uh, uh, um, what is his name? We, because Jovenel was attacking the oligarchy, he, the gangs that were sponsored by the oligarchy was, were preventing trade taking place in Haiti. There was uh, gang violence. They had blockaded some of the roads leading from the north to the south. So whereas, you, you know, some left-wing and, uh, uh, journalists want to argue that the gangs represent uh, a revolution of the lumping proletariat, I'm not ready to make that analysis yet. But um, well, I think the gangs are being hired by both sides. The, 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 by Jovenel as well as the oligarchy to bang bang it out against each other. Yes, to undermine the, 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 the country. Because right. and, when, and, when and, and the only people that are dying the only people that are dying are the peasants who are trying yes. to protest. And then the with this assassination as uh, the the latest New York Times report, with this assassination, now I hear that the the the, the, the Haitian state has appealed to the Americans to send forces to Haiti to help them control the violence and investigate the assassination. And this right. is what the, the oligarchy wanted, because you need a modicum of some stability in order to have any sort of economic Right. And I think also, I saw someone posted, allegedly the Haitian state, the Haitian Senate has named the new interim president. I don't know if that's bogus. I doubt the U.S. Yeah, that was the rumor. They, they, I the, doubt the U.S. Senate. government is going to recognize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Joseph but, Lambert. I think that what's happened is that the U.S. State Department and the oligarchs are going to try to find a replacement president with a sham election who meet, who who will work with the oligarchs yeah, and with the State Department and to and fulfill this neoliberal agenda. Yeah, they they got they need a dark skinned politique de double. They need a little dark skinned peasant in control. All you gotta do is keep your mouth shut and do what we say. And now back to our common ground. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Pascal Rupert is our guest tonight. He is home once more. Uh, Pascal, uh, it seems like they shot the sheriff, but they forgot the deputy. Who's the deputy in <laughs> Haiti? Well, actually, the guy who they shot was probably the deputy. The sheriff is probably the oligarch class. Now, we have to put this in the context as who is the Haitian oligarchy. Uh, I would suggest you refer uh, your viewers to the segment that we did with Dr. Paul McComb, uh, the special we did on Haiti uh, yesterday that you can find in This Is Revolution podcast on YouTube, and also check out my appearance on the Majority Report, Majority Report that is Friday you can Wait, go on YouTube. Majority Report on Friday. Just put a pin right there. I wanted, I want people to know that 
Pascal Robert swagged on in to the Majority Report, which is a huge podcast, a very important podcast to whoever. And he stunned those people. Sam Satter, who is the co-host with the other lady, <laughs> and I don't know her name, um, listened to Pascal Robert for almost 20 minutes as he ran down the real deal of history and contemporary political unrest in Haiti, and the man couldn't breathe. He should have just chatted in the chat room, I can't breathe. Go ahead, Pascal. <laughs> I was so proud of you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But the basic reality that your audience needs to realize is that was the United States involved? Yes, tacitly. No one is going to assassinate a Haitian president internally without the green light from the State Department. But what we also have to realize is there are big, big-time levels internal conflicts in Haiti because we have this class of parasitic commercial actors we call the Haitian oligarchy. Most of them are not even originally Haitian. They're usually Lebanese, Syrians, Arabs, Middle Easterners, sometimes the German, European in origin. They look like those they don't look black at all. And they control about ninety percent of the business on the island. They got to the island because in the early twentieth century they were expatriates from their European countries and because they were fair complexion and they had international trade connections, they were able able to slowly creep up and develop good trade relationships when the US was under when Haiti was under occupation by the US and definitely after World War II. Two, and at a certain point under Duvalier, because Duvalier was supported by them, because Duvalier was antagonistic to the Haitian mulattoes, and they, the Haitian mulattoes have always hated the international oligarchy of Haiti, that they supported Duvalier, and they got even bigger market share. And now they control everything, and the black elites and the mulatto elites hate them because they basically treat them like second-class citizens, and they have a parasitic extortion racket with services for the Haitian people. Uh, but the thing is, because Jovenel Moise was trying to cut them out of their market share and do business with international actors like Turkey, the last international trip that Jovenel Moise took was to Turkey to sign memorandums of understanding to do development concessions in Turkey that would have in Haiti that would have normally gone to the oligarchy. They were like, you're, you're messing with our money, and they were basically – the Jovenel Moïse administration and the oligarchy were both bang, bang, banging it out in the streets. That's what all the gang violence is about, killing basically poor Haitian people left and right who were protesting the administration while the, while the oligarchy was still having some of their businesses destroyed. Meanwhile, the majority of the Haitian masses are, are being sacrificed. And I think at a certain point, the oligarchy made that call to the State Department and said, listen, this guy is creating chaos. He's reaching out to the Turks. He may, be, he may even reach out to the Russians. Who knows? He's got to go. And the State Department said, fine, as long as you can do it and we can try to orchestrate an election, we get a puppet that's okay for the Haitian oligarchy and okay for the State Department. We'll put him in. Let's see what happens. But I think what's happening is that it was done so sloppily that it's kind of unraveling, and people are starting to ask seriously, what was the role of the Haitian oligarchy in this hit? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think people would be interested in is to 
understand who Mose was. Where did he come from? He was um, basically a puppet chosen by the prior president, Martelli, who came from the peasant class. No one knew who he was, who had allegedly had his own banana business. Some people think it actually was a, long, was, a, was a questionable business, and that he was a puppet. There's an old tradition that is used in Haiti that basically the elites find a little dark-skinned puppet who the black masses will support because he's dark-skinned and he thinks that they'll do good for him, but actually he's going to work as a puppet for the elites, and it's called la politique de doubleur, the politics of double face or the, the politics of confusion. As a matter of fact, my mm-hmm. Haitian uncle Eric said, said one of the main reasons he didn't support Obama is because he thought it was the ruling class in America importing la politique de doubleur to African-Americans. Well, he wasn't far. He was. He was right on it, Uncle. Uncle who? Eric. Eric. This is my father's uh, brother. Uh, Uncle Eric, um, I'm loving because he was. He was right on it. Now, one of the things that I think that we need to think through, we think that somehow the events that uh, the historical events and the events that are currently happening in Haiti, uh, that somehow the U.S. is internally, uh, domestically immune. And people don't understand while there is a Ukrainian oligarchs, which are really controlled by Putin, and then there are oligarchs in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and in Turkey and certainly in the Caribbean, especially around uh, Jamaica and um, Barbados and the Dominican Republic and Trinidad, Tobago, they all have oligarchs, and we have our own oligarchs. Let's start with the Koch brothers because they are U.S. oligarchs. And and let's start with and and let's start with how both Reagan, Bush, first Bush, the second Bush. And Barack Obama created the economic and financial uh, infrastructure in order for oligarchs to be able to seep into the American uh, politics. Uh, I know you and I have had a you and I have had a conversation. I think Jeff Bezos, as rich as he is, is too silly. To figure out being an oligarch, he well, he well, may he's got be connections to inte- he gets he has intelligence contracts. He does do some cloud work, I believe, with the, the deep state. So he owns the Washington Washington Post. So mm-hmm. I mean, so he's definitely not you... one of the Koch brothers. He, he, he may have more money than the Koch brothers, but the Koch brothers have been involved in political infrastructure in this country going back for years. And the DeVos and the Walton family—they are all U.S. oligarchs. Correct. And we need to begin to have in our cadre of intellectual uh, toolbox, in our intellectual toolbox, is to understand the U.S. politics through the lenses of understanding that we are not different from other countries. We tend to think that that's what happens in Africa, that's what happens in Haiti, that's what happens in Jamaica. It is happening here, folks, where there There is a claim made and that there is power and money behind 
how your government operates. If you're wondering why DeJoy is still the Postmaster General, it is because the U.S. oligarchs have decided that the U.S. Postal Service must be held in bay for privatization. That's been going on since Nixon. No, Reagan. So, uh, you know, we don't pay attention, Pascal, to how U.S. dollars are spent in in contracting, especially in agriculture, especially in health and human services, especially in housing. Um, those are the areas in, co- in commerce. Like you, you look at Ross, Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross was a puppet of U.S. oligarchs. Am I right? I believe you're correct. So let's go back to Haiti, and I'm, I'm, I know everyone is interested in how do the people of Haiti begin to seep into some kind of uh, a successful or effective resistance uh, in this uprising. That's the question, because the problem is the Haitian middle class, which is two factions, you have the Haitian black middle class and the Haitian fair complexion middle class, work in companies owned by the oligarchs, and their class allegiances sometimes allow them to so desirously want to be up near them that they, and both of, all, both of those classes are interested in grounding the black majority to powder, which has been the problem since the Asian Revolution, that they don't realize that the oligarchs are the ones who are facilitating the misery for the whole country and that they have to really understand that there might be a time to have a Haitian Revolution 2.0 to fix this problem. The Haitian middle class does not have the political militancy to realize that that might need to be the, be the case, but the grassroots and the, the proletariat, the, what they call particularly the peasant class or the habitants, they're ready to rock and roll. The streets are hot in Haiti right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly going to be watching this and, and hope that you and we're going to be inviting Dr. Paul Mokom, uh to our common ground uh, to really give us a lesson to understand how this is a historical evolution in that nation. Uh, I have been going through boxes trying to find my interview with uh, President Bertrand uh, Aristide back in 19, whenever it was, 1993, 92, um, so that I can put it up in our archives. Pascal Robert, I have so much enjoyed your return home, and I hope that you will always be available to us. Folks, it is This Is Revolution podcast on YouTube. Uh, on, they are on bringing Facebook. it. Also, you can find yeah. our audios on all your relevant podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcasters. This Is Revolution podcast. And the, and you know we don't ask you for any money. We 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 pay for your ticket here. So what I'm asking 
is that you become Sub- go to Patreon to and subs- subscribe to the YouTube page, but subscribe as a Patreon yes. um, um, to keep this podcast alive. It's robust. It's intellectually stimulating. It's educational. And anything that you find there is a, a path uh, to uh, a liberation uh, thought process that you need, that you can use in your lives. Thank you, Pascal, for being with us. Thank all of you for being with us tonight. And we're going to have our special. Uh, I hope Pascal will stay with us because we have this um, special broadcast of um, uh, portions of a broadcast with Daruba bin Wahad uh, at This Is Revolution just this morning. It is a black people need to listen, learn, and liberate. We'll see you next week. Nowhere do we need common ground more desperately than in our discussions of race. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. The issue in the debate that are set by the enemy and that are set by the ruling elite. Who said that marijuana was a gateway drug? The motherfuckers that wanted, made, that, that wanted to introduce methadone, the same people that have state dope fees, the same people that erected a whole drug, drug uh, uh, edifice to deal with addiction as if it was some type of social, sociopathological uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, 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 threat, whereas alcohol, alcohol is good. Alcohol kills more people than marijuana every year. In, in drunk driving, in incidents, murders, gun violence, alcohol is, but alcohol is legal, isn't it? But wasn't there was a time historically when alcohol was banned, and what was alcohol banned? The so-called suffrage movement was banning alcohol on some moral and some religious values. You understand that it was, you know, the, uh, the uh, elixir of the devil, and it made people crazy, and they banned it. And what happened? Tribalism. What happened? Organized crime emerged and arose out of that period in 1920 in the early industrial period that, that outlawed alcohol. And alcohol became much like heroin in terms of how profitable it was for these crime organizations. The and it corrupted the police. Exactly. Al Capone didn't go to jail for, for, for drive-bys and shooting people. He went to jail for tax evasion. You see, and now once they once once corporations became people, once corporations became individuals, when is the last time have you seen a pharmaceutical company that that that's peddled drugs that have addicted people millions into into addictive uh, uh, drugs, cl- claiming to, to 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 deal with high blood pressure or or, or or nerves or whatever? When was the last time Pfizer got indicted by anybody? I mean, when was the last time they all. They're paying these massive. There's a there's a fine that uh, uh, Purdue is paying that's in the billions. But at the end of the day, I think we all know that these fines are something that they can afford to pay. That's why they agree to paying them. And I don't know if you saw this recently. Uh, this this I, I read this uh, yesterday, day before yesterday, that there's a stipulation in this in this agreement in this settlement agreement that they're going to pay this multi-billion-dollar fine, but you can't sue them anymore. Once they pay out this money, it's like, all right, y'all, y'all, we're done playing your reindeer games. 
Um, Absolutely. So, 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 so I, I just wanted to conclude that when, when, when the brother Jason was talking about, you know, how he experienced, you know, that there was these drive by. I mean, we know we got these crazy kids out there shooting crazy and killing babies and innocent people and drive, but, but, but. I strongly believe that if our community was 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 organized and if and if black men and women took responsibility for uh for for public safety or even on a in a collective way, you know, this wouldn't happen. You know, and I've I've had that experience in the Black Panther Party where we have told drug dealers, man, y'all you're not slinging this yayo on this box. It's not happening. So if you're all going to continue to do this, we're going to throw your ass off the roof and, and or we're going to throw your ass over a lamppost, you know, and, you know, if you want to get it like that, we, we could roll like that, you know, and, and they respected that. They didn't do it. You know, if we had if we had community control of police and the police lived in our community, how many policemen do you think are going to let their daughter walk down the street and a bunch of crackheads are dealing crack on both sides of the street? She got to walk through that. That ain't happening. You know, and, and, and so we have to become our own first responders. And when we failed to do that, it was in that vacuum that this tribalism of gang warfare and turf warfare occurred. I mean, you could look at any documentary, you could see that you have gangs and crips and bloods and all of these deacons and all of these folks, you know, claiming territory that they don't have no control over. They clean the streets. They don't. They don't. They, they can't enforce no traffic rules. They, they, the only person that has imminent domain is the government. They talking about this is their territory. What kind of shit is that? It's your territory. Uh, when, and when Popo want to roll in, they roll in whenever they feel like it, and 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 throw your ass up against the wall and beat your mama into the concrete. And what you gonna say? You gonna you gonna throw your gun away then? Huh? You ain't gonna fight because you don't have no organized armed agents in your in your community. You do not have the ability to defend the black community and its integrity. And without that power, without that ability, then everything else that we're talking about right now just basically mm -hmm. becomes rhetoric and intellectual. Uh, I'm going back to my original point. Who is the black community? Who is the black community, Daruba? Who's the black community? The black community is those, the black communities are those neighborhoods, are those hoods that used to have the word neighbor in front of it. You know, when I grew up, to, uh, our, our, our community wasn't called the hood. It was neighborhood. It, that meant that we were neighbors to each other. I mean, when I grew up in the South Bronx, I could, I could, if I left my block and was doing some dumb shit two blocks away, my mama would know about it before I got home. Okay, there was this homogeneity, and we weren't we weren't rich. This was working class, poor communities living in tenements. No, I, no, I believe that you can have a working. I believe that you can have a working class community of black people, and I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think you can have multiple black communities of working class. But my basic point is that the unitary facilitation of racial collectiveness is a con game in the 50-year counter-revolution that has done nothing but enrich the class of Negroes who work as contractors for the ruling class. While the economic precarity, well, that was, but that, but that is the normal. That 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 is the point of encapsulation. That doesn't mean that what's being encapsulated is invalid. Is is invalid? It's invalid if you're going to be working with those Negroes and calling them part of your we. No, but it's it's invalid if those who are encapsulated are, are put, are, are become the primary agents of 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 
I don't want to even use the word change. The primary agents of expanding the power of 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 the of the ownership class, of 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 the elite, of the political class. You know, and I think that's your real beef. Your real beef is that we don't have black uh, uh, leaders. We don't have leaders who. Uh, exercise power as if they were black. They exercise power as if they are Americans and black doesn't matter. You see, and 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 that's like the flip side of your argument, which say which says we are proceeding as 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 black people when in fact that's that's to the utility of the enemy, and if when we're actually workers, you know, and 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 I disagree with the notion that the majority of black people fit neatly into the post-industrial age working class because we've all been reduced to consumers on a on a on a level where you know where 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 we cannot produce um, uh, more than we can. Con- we, 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 we produce, I'm sorry, we, we, we produce more than we could possibly consume. So consumption and working class comes imperative to, 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 to capitalism, to finance capitalism. And this is globally as well as, 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 as nationally. So now we have a situation with global elite, where the elite in other nations, and you know this from our history and from recent history, Pascal, the, the elite in, in, in France or the political elite or the financial elite in different nations, they had their own interests at, at heart. They primarily were down for, to enrich French, the French elite the French um, uh, finance house. But now we have globalized, uh, globalized um, uh, um, it, what I call new age imperialism, which is globalization, which was piggyback off of old age imperialism, you know, that, that now we have a global elites, global collaboration with, with, with ruling classes and political elites. That's what these conferences are in the mountains all the time. That's what these conferences are all about when they have, when they call together the so-called a global elite and all the billionaires show up and they call it and they call into the waiting room the niggas from from Africa you know that, that they want to keep on the payroll and have them sit in the room and come out for a photo op and say they're going to send a hundred million dollars to fight Ebola or we're going to do this or we're going to do that and they'll and they'll trot out these bootlickers like uh, um, uh, uh, what's the name Yedemai used to be and this other piece of crap in um in uh in, in Egypt, all of these guys. You see? So we have to understand that of course the enemy is going to has used a flip race on its head and used it against us. That's why black places and high places don't mean nothing. You know, that's why I think Pascal is talking about and I agree with him, uh, they not we ain't us. You know, they ain't we me, you know, so so but at the same time Time. That doesn't mean we couldn't have been or we shouldn't have been a week. You see, it's lack of sovereign thinking. If we were sovereign, if we were sovereign people, then, 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 I mean, it would be like the Kurds, for instance. I mean, if we know anything about the history of the Kurds, it would be like the Kurds participating in, in, in a regime after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Does that mean they're not a people? Does that mean that, that, that the autonomy that they're seeking isn't a subterfuge or a substitute for self-determination? Um, and, 
especially seeing that they're sitting on on the richest oil reserves in Iraq, you know, so that gives them a high degree of economic independence. So I think the liberation, national liberation in the age of globalization has has shown that nationalism as an ideology is has come to a historical end. That 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 we are trying to figure out that 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 we are figure, we are trying to figure out how does a global community function in the age of instant communication and technology and we know we're getting further and further along in artificial intelligence we're getting further and further along with um with instant communications and 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 and, and bio and bio um uh uh, uh, uh and, and, and bio-optics and all of these things. And so, you know, uh, I was just telling some brothers here, General Motors and some uh, American car manufacturers had made statements that they're not going to produce another uh, uh, internal combustion engine car in, in by, by, 19, by 1935, okay? So where all these combustion engine cars are going to go? You're going to throw them away? You're going to chop them up and make, and make windmills out of them? Hell no. They come in here. Africa, that's where they're going. While the rest, while while the developed world rides around on electric cars, some cars with no wheels, on air cushions, and all of this shit. You see what I'm saying? It's going. They're going to come here. They're going to come to the place that has the most potential for for renewable energy. Africa. Africa has okay, the well, most potential of any continent for renewable energy. All right, Jerubba. You see, hear me, me out. Hear me out here. I think we we we've definitely agreed that the particular utility of the black proletariat and the lumpen proletariat to capitalism, we know that it it renders them disproportionately to the reserve army of labor. So I will agree that there is a need for a black working class proletariat and lumpen proletariat politics because there is a, a, a material political reality that the black lumpen and the black proletariat faces in capitalism that has been consistent. And it is that capitalism disproportionately renders them to the reserve army of labor. But at the same time, what happens in the capitalist political sphere is that framing their political needs in the context of blackness allows them to be contained in a bag with elites that do not have their class interests that work as compradors against their interests. So the question becomes... But I don't think... Hold on, hold on, there's a question. The question becomes... Go ahead, can, go ahead. can the black working class create a black working class politics that allows it to align with those of multi-ethnic coalitions who are similarly class situated but maintain the integrity of its working class exigences as those that are disproportionately rendered to the reserve army of labor. That's the question I want to ask you. In in global capitalism, if without that type of, of movement, without that rainbow coalition, that's what the idea was about. You see, without that being manifest, we're going to always have this liberal bullshit wing of the Democratic Party, which basically is the is the um, is the center of the of the Republican Party, and the right wing of the Republican Party, which is basically you know the. I mean, these practices. I mean, it, the only thing they differ in is how to name how to name us how to name us niggers. How you know how to pass a bill that'll treat us and put us in where we belong. 
And so and if we don't if we don't see that that one we do have to identify ourselves as workers, not just as workers in the post-industrial age, but as, work, as, as the global community of disenfranchised and impoverished people, because none of the nation states today in Africa has a working class leadership. None of the states in, in Africa that were artificially created by the imperialists have working class movements that are, that, are, that are controlling and running the country. In fact, the comprador class, the same ones that we have, that run the countries, that are, that are down with the U.S. and its foreign policies. And this goes for, for black folks in Africa. This goes for the people in the, in, in, in the Middle East. This goes for workers in, 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 in Southeast Asia. This goes for I mean, around the world. So when we look at the streets, and I mean, I've been to places in the last year from Beirut to Oman to Turkey, you know, to, to South Africa, to East Africa, everywhere, the people, the age of the people in the streets is damn near the same. And they have the same beef, and it's with the state, and it's with how they have no future. It's how they have no control over their own destiny. People are in the streets every day for that purpose. So this is, corresponds to the global elite. The global elite is meeting in Davros, what, every two years or something? They have their conferences where they sit down and they call and they call the shots. Where is solidarity between working people now? There's no second, there's no third international. There's nothing that exists. The U.S. is able to impose embargoes on any country um, that that it wants. Look at Venezuela, how they've embargoed and and, and blockade Venezuela. Cuba, the same thing. Zimbabwe, the same thing. When we look at 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 at, at how the uh, the uh, finance capital has balkanized Africa, creating these bogus uh, uh, area trade unions, ECOWAS, SADAC, to prevent Pan-African unity. When was the last time you heard the word Pan-African come out of the African Union? You ain't heard that shit since, 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 Kwame, since it was the Organization of African-American Unity, okay? Pan-African Pan -African, um, really means um, um, the organization of international workers. Um, and, and this is because the majority of people on the planet that are workers are people of color. The European, Europe is a peninsula. Look at Europe. It's a small peninsula with a small population, okay? And, and it's melanin deficient. There's something to be said about the paranoia and, and inhumanity of people who are melanin deficient towards people who have melanin content. History has shown us this. What was the papal decree that said to the Spaniards and Isabella, Queen Isabella and Ferdinand, that anybody that they see that don't have a white skin and not a Christian, they can do anything they want to to them? Huh? You think that shit changed? That shit ain't changed. Ain't nothing changed but the address. You see, so, so, so we need to understand, yes, we have to identify ourselves as an African diaspora because that would make us the most powerful diaspora on the continent. But without a pan-African approach to the geopolitical paradigm of, 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 of globalization, we're nothing but, you know, a bunch of academics and intellectuals and elites talking bullshit. You see? I have no Why problem. I, I totally agree with you. I, I have a, a, I mean, a black look at, what, look at this international. Oh, Look man. at what just happened. I've been day. talking about that for you three know, days. You could, you could scour the news. We could scour the news. We could scour the news. And you know how hard it is to find a, a news report on what just happened in Haiti? Al Jazeera, the 
Only ones that showed what uh, 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 a little bit about it was the Chinese uh, was the, uh, CGTV, huh? where they showed the the um, the, the uh, Colombian president talking about he was going to cooperate fully with the Haitian with the Haitian people to come to the bottom of of why these uh, Colombian so-called retired uh, uh, soldiers um, uh, were involved in uh, in the assassination. Of, of the Haitian, uh, 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 the Haitian uh, um, regime, uh, head of the Haitian regime. So, so I mean, I had to look for, I got to look for the news on Haiti. But could you imagine if that was some, if that was some Mickey Mouse uh, knucklehead leader in 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 in, um, in the Balkans somewhere, you know, yeah. in, in in some state that we never even heard of, and got assassinated? Man, that's all the breaking news you heard. You see, so we need to understand that there is a power in the idea and the concept of Pan-African um, a, a, a unity and a Pan-African movement. And, 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 and if we did have a Pan-African political paradigm in Africa, that would radically change a lot. There is no reason why, why the African Union does not have a Pan-African refugee and relief program, a, a project agency. Well, I, no reason. I think that part There's of no the problem is that the concept of pan has become a tool of petite bourgeois university trained intellectuals and not a proletarianized movement of working class and lumping black people globally in the black diaspora. It's it's a fetish concept. You hard, you hard, people. Pascal. Pascal, you hard, bro. <laughs> Why are you so cold? Come on. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you cold, brother. <laughs> Why are you so cold? Did you want to answer this? <laughs> this is a segment. You understand? Don't be so cold, brother. You just, oh, man, come on. I've got a question come because, on. you know, and, um, where this whole thing started, you know, as like Pascal asked him the question of uh, the limitations or, you know, or, or what is the, the, the stance or the the, the, uh, the situation with uh, the black movement within within the United States. And I guess, like, what, what I would want to know, especially, you know, speaking, uh, having the chance to speak with you, Daruba, is what do you see the differences are between – you know, some of the actions of Black Panther Party, of the BLA, of, you know, uh, some of these movements, what are the differences? And I think you've already alluded to two, some of these things, is when you're talking about, like, community policing, some of these things are just literally finding the problems that are happening within the community and having a direct response to it, not just a an electoral ask or some type of nonprofit, this is our goal, lofty goal are just kind of coming direct in the community and saying, this is what we're going to do right now. Um, I guess, yeah, what do you, are there any steps that we're missing now? Because, like, I mean, like, yeah, this is what I got to grow up in. You know, a lot of y'all are talking about, like, this, like my I think, generation. I, so. I think, but you see, that's, you know, I just had a recent experience um, and with with one of the younger brothers that's in the um, it's been the Black Alliance for Peace, and and these kids got some, you know, they 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 got some pretty on point politics. They're trying to get their act together, you know. And so they asked me, they were they were going over a piece that I wrote about thirty years ago called "Towards Rethinking um, uh, Self Defense in in a Racist in a Racist Culture," something like that. 
the original title was Towards Rethinking uh, Revolutionary Violence in a White Supremacist uh, uh, Context. That was the original. But, and you know, I toned it down to the, you know. And so they went over the article. And um, and then when I heard their responses, oh, my God. It was so disjointed, so... I said, did they really read the article? They didn't understand the, the nexus between... Um, 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 uh, decentralization of police and 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 how you exercise local political uh, power, how you how you use uh, law enforcement and and prosecutorial agencies, what they what their purpose is. They, it, it, it was devoid of any type of consistent analysis. It was all about you know how they grew up, what they experienced, you know, like when they were small kids, and these and these are kids. You know, 24, 25, you see what I'm saying? Uh, it's and a basic lack of understanding of civics. Yeah, but, yeah, but that's, that goes to what your question was about the revolutionary potential right now for, the, uh, for, 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 for black people in America. We, we, it's not just civics. What has happened was that um, um, a, a major strategy that's taught in counterinsurgency is that you have to you have to um, incapacitate the ability of any revolutionary or mass movement to pass on any type of leadership or experiences to another generation of of activists. I mean that's fundamental. You can't allow leaders to pass on their experiences and and their and their organizational skills to another generation because that'll keep the movement going. This is why the Vietnamese won their struggle because they didn't get the they were supposed to lose, you know, because they didn't get the memo. You fight the most powerful military force on earth. You can't win. We didn't get that memo. So that's why they went out hanging on helicopter skids, you see, So because they were able to fight from one generation to the next, and they understood that no matter what, what goes down, you know, we're going to stay here. We're going to be here, and we're going to win, you see. And that was the major point of COINTELPRO. That was the major point of, of destroying Garvey, uh, the, uh, the Garvey movement. That was the major point of misdirecting um, uh, the black power movement in, into cultural into cultural nationalism and into the type of, um, of despicable displays of politics that Pascal is talking about in the name of blackness, you see. Um, and, and nothing's changed. You know, it's still, you know, we still have those brothers who, who are claiming, you know, that they've been struggling for years and years around reparations, and now the reparations has a bill in Congress. You know, people don't want to talk to them, and now so they they want to be, you know, the major spokespersons in their head for reparations, talking about reparations. And I told this little forum that's coming up. I don't know if you knew about it. This forum's be coming up this month, I think on the fifteenth or something like that, on 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 reparations. It's supposed to be this big Zoom conference, and I told one of the professors, I said, "Man, y'all are you know, reparations. The way you're presenting it is an oxymoron. You know, it's a political oxymoron because we're not a people. Y'all are not presenting ourselves as a people. We have half of our population trying to get reforms and act and talking like we are Americans and we just." this in America just like everybody else and y'all are talking about you know we were we ados we were the victims of 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 of, of, of chattel slavery and 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 the expansion of mercantile capitalism and made a so they owe us 
who can, who's us? Who's us? We revisiting the Voting Rights Act every goddamn four or five years. Who's us? Listen, Druba, I'll give you my, my opinion. The contradictions of capitalism, capitalism in the neoliberal era in the 50-year counter-revolution has been so brutal that the comprador elite that has been the ventriloquist for the black masses, because they are so worried about maintaining their security as utilitarian tools of the ruling class, and they cannot identify with a criticism of the capitalist hierarchy because they realize if they did that, they would have to form a working class politics that's not their own, is doubling down on the racial ventriloquist fat back and biscuits politics. And that's why we have this great awakening because they believe that they can get concessions that will benefit them more than working class poor and black people. And that's the only thing they can get out of this because they're too cowardly and cynical to develop a working class politics for black people because they know they will cut them out for being racial ventriloquists and the utility would disappear. Well, I don't have no disagreement with what you just said, Pascal, but I think that that you're giving them too much credit in the the sense that, you know, that they don't want to, um, they don't want to be identified as ordinary working class black people, not just because they, not just because they have a, a utilitarian purpose, and and you know they could have a slick house and they could have some nice cars and, and they could live that you know bullshit middle class existence, and uh, without worrying about going to jail. Of course, they could still worry about getting pulled over for a broken taillight and getting murdered, but that's you know that's that's uh, you know that's an exception, not the rule. I guess that's how they look at it. But you're right. I think you're absolutely right. So if that's the case, if that's the case in which I happen to agree it is, then we have to really understand that these are black enemies of black people. And, we need and, to be the class contradiction. The class contradictions of black people needs to be sharpened, and we need less black unity and more black class warfare, in my humble opinion. Now, I guess uh, something I want to ask. I'd like to hear Gruber. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, my no, no, question, ahead, I, my question, yeah, my question ties to, I think, to, to what you're dealing at, Pascal, and is say, well, recognizing that the Black Panthers were doing what Gruber you're saying, like we need now, on a, you know, like more on a larger scale, a separate third party that ties into the needs of the people directly, but also works in the institutions of power to start dismantling some of the oppressive nature of it. Now, part of that, you, you know, had an education process to become into, come into the party. Now- Thank you so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight. We'll see you right here at 10 p.m. on Our Common Ground next Saturday. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you.